Hi, uh, I'm Kim Newman, uh, novelist and critic and uh, generally well-informed person around horror. And I'm welcoming you to the uh, commentary track for this uh, brand spanking new, uh, hopefully high definition release of Dario Argento's uh, classic movie, Suspiria. Uh, I'm joined today by Alan Jones, the the great expert on, on Dario Argento, the man who has all the answers to all the questions that you might have about this film, in which I will endeavour to pose him uh, throughout this picture. Thanks, Kim. Well, let's take it right from the very word go. I mean... Uh... The credits, of course, here are completely different to um, what the Americans put on the front. I mean, that was like very much like uh, the uh, trailer they did, which had like the pulsating flesh, I remember. Um, so these are actually the original Italian credits that we're actually looking at here, more or less. So um, that's a good start when you consider what uh, the Americans are doing mostly with Italian horror movies around this time. I mean, we're talking... Um, 1976 when it was made, 1977 when it was released all around the world. And of course it became one of the landmarks of horror ever, really. I mean, it's always listed in either the top ten, the top five. It's always listed on directors' famous, sort of like famous directors' lists. So um, it's one of the gems of the 70s. It's one of the landmarks of horror. And it's also the one that is, I think, one of the most influential horror movies ever made. Right. We've just uh, passed a tiny bit of controversy there. Some say that you can see co-screenwriter Daria Nicolodi in that crowd. You say not. Not at all. I mean, no, that girl in red there that we're seeing disappear through the door is not Daria Nicolodi. I mean, we'll get on to that a bit later on, but she was as far away from this film as you could possibly imagine um, from an appearance point of view, not from the writing, of course. Um, I always remember... This, I mean, I saw this film um, when it first came out in the cinema, um, a late night preview in September of 77, because EMI uh, released it here. I will never forget the impact the opening of this movie had on me. And the amazing thing is, it's a girl leaving an airport. It's actually <laughs> not a scary scene, um, but it's staged, uh, shot, edited, lit in such a way uh, with music to give you the impact. You know that you're in for a, ter a terrifying picture from things like the little insert of the workings of the automatic door mm. um, sort of give you a, a presage of the horrible stuff that's to come. I, I also think this is one of the best openings of a horror film ever, um, including the almost up until the moment when the murders start, actually. It's... It, You've already had your fill of scares mm. before the film even gets started. Uh, and I think that that's the approach this film takes that maybe previous horror movies hadn't gone to. It's, it's a film that's scary entirely through direction, almost beyond even its subject matter. Mm. And that's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, uh, everyone I've spoken to, um, director-wise, always cites this, these opening, well, 20 minutes, as being absolutely you know awe-inspiring to them i mean they just couldn't get over it. i mean john carpenter is very well known for actually basing the whole of his halloween look and his whole <laughs> musical uh, soundtrack around this opening sequence so he's one of the, the you know one of the most obvious people to have been influenced by this i think you've got to go back to this particular time i mean as i said i did see this um you know when i really was looking forward to it knew nothing about it and it really hit me with such an impact i i think the impact still is there for a lot of people who see it for the first time who haven't but obviously 30 years ago it was such mega 
yeah. uh, stuff that we'd never seen this before. I saw it about a month after you did uh, on its general release on a double bill with uh, Zoltan Hound of Dracula, <laughs> also known as Dracula's Dog. There and you go. And once you'd seen that, <laughs> there was a thought, well, we kind of know what horror films are like. We know where we're going with this. And then this comes on. Mm. Uh, and I still remember, even though I think it was even an afternoon showing, people crawling out of the cinema, uh, say, what was that film? Mm. Because it seemed to come from nowhere for from the, the point of view of the general film-goer. Um, Argento, of course, had his followers with, with the, the run of, of yellow thrillers he'd been making from Bird with the Crystal Plumage all the way through to Deep Red, but they hadn't really crossed over into general awareness outside the fan circles this was the one that somehow did make an impact uh, and in fact it goes against your general assumption about films is that uh, it's a case where the wilder the crazier the harder to understand film was the success that the earlier movies which now wonderful as they are are simple easy to get genre murder mystery thrillers that mm. you know, and this is a film that seems like that for about an hour um, I do know somebody who saw this film at the time, having seen Argento's earlier films, who didn't know that it was going to turn out to be a supernatural story and assumed for an hour that there'd be an explanation at the end. And then he said there was a great moment of liberation when he realised that there was no need to explain this. It was what it was. Well, that's interesting to me. I yeah. mean, because I thought, I think it was very much in the, um, in the zeitgeist at the time that Argento was making a supernatural movie. I do remember looking forward to it because of that. Um, I'd, I'd seen all of uh, Argento's films in sequence from The Bird with the Crystal Plumage through uh, Cat of Nine Tails, Four Flies on Grave Hour and Deep Red. So I, I, perhaps, I was, uh, perhaps I'm in a minority that I knew what to expect. If you see them all together, you do see that they are building towards the spirit. Deep Red is a murder mystery, but it has some supernatural elements there's lots of um prophetic moments and there's a sort of a hint of the supernatural even though it turns out in the end to be an as it were an ordinary killer the mood of the film is building towards suspiria you can see how suspiria takes off from deep red yeah. uh, even the fact that deep red has the the music of goblin or the goblins as they're billed at the beginning of this <laughs> this film we love yeah. that i mean i have to tell you here that jessica harper told me that when she was making this uh, filming this whole scene um, she was wearing literally like plastic mac underneath her outfit uh, to stop her getting soaked through and she said it was the most uncomfortable experience she's ever ever had and of course I think in the uh, um, in the audio track they had to take off the rustling of the plastic <laughs> yeah. underneath but she said it was very very awkward to wear um, just very irritating for her um, well, of course, we're, this is opening on the actual one of the key scenes, isn't it? I mean, what is going on in this uh, yeah, ballet school? Yes. And what's this amazing decor? Yeah. Mm. Uh, does anybody actually live in a place like this? But uh, I, I actually, I don't even care. I just want to believe people live in in places like this. I particularly want to believe that penniless ballet students can afford <laughs> apartments like this. Um, I have to say, having seen a bunch of these Italian films, uh, when I finally went to Rome and realised that people do live in apartments <laughs> like this, usually because their parents are obscenely rich or corrupt or in the government, um, I was I, I, I reevaluated my my vision of Argento as a surrealist and realised that he merely observes his own surroundings. Mm. This, however, is astonishingly heightened. 
Mm. It's, uh, it's on the verge of kitsch to me, this production design, though, in these bits. I mean, it's almost like... I mean, I don't remember noticing that at the time, but when I when you actually look at it now, it couldn't be more sort of like, well, Studio 54, yes. dis- disco yeah, kitsch, really, I think, could it? I, I, most horror films then and and now take their visual cues from things like um, Alfred Hitchcock or Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe films. But it always strikes me that this is a movie that has the the palette of sort of Powell and Pressburger or Vincenti Minnelli. It's almost like the horror musical. (laughs) Um, And the fact that it's about uh, performance school sort of lends that to it. There's a kind of red shoes look to some of this that I find very appealing. Well, you've actually hit the one film that is often cited as one of the, uh, the, you know, the visual inspirations. I mean, Janny Romilly, who, of course, went on to write uh, Trauma and the sect for uh, Dario, um, used to run um, one of, uh, well, I suppose the BFI of Rome yeah. is what you'd call it. And he would actually programme a lot of Michael Powell films. And he always told me that just before Suspiria was entered pre-production, Dario would be in the cinema watching the red shoes at literally every performance to actually get, I think, visual cues and a, a vague look at how the uh, the decor would be. Yeah, it is also one of the few films about ballet, so he probably wanted to get some of those those details right. There's a little of um, the Tales of Hoffman as well, which is an even more stylized Powell and Pressburger film from the time. Uh, but I think what's really striking is that if you compare it to... American horror films of the 1970s or even some other Italian horror films of the 1970s, the colours are so different. If you look at, say, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm. which is all washed out yellow, green, some dark nights, yeah, but this has these amazingly rich blues and reds and, and sort of livid oranges, mm. um, which was... Uh, something you didn't see actually in 70s movies it was very unfashionable then i mean it's it's more like the look that you had in the early 80s when films started being influenced by mtv um it has a sort of yeah it it lays down the the palette that you would get from i don't know early russell mulcahy oh dear yeah (laughs) i mean i think i think the visual and color coding is actually quite an important aspect of this and that that's a lot to do with the um that the, the way he shot it, the way Luciano Tovoli lit it, I mean, this is all, you know, part of the whole fabric, I think, of Suspiria, which is why um, we've discussed this many times, which is why this film really can't be remade <laughs> as they keep mooting, yeah. because it's not about the story. Mm. It's about the look. It's about the whole atmosphere and the evocation of that. And I think that's where, you know, stupid producers are making a terrible mistake mm-hmm. when it comes to this film. I mean, you know, because now, of course, this sort of uh, sequence is pretty formula. Mm. But back then, this was like something completely new and something different. I mean, you know, apart from the sort of like the tacky little button eyes are about to see yeah. coming <laughs> up. But, you know, even but, so, yeah. I mean... But those were a feature of a great many strange yeah, yeah. Italian films at the time. It has a, has a, there is a, a weirdness to Cat's that. eyes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, and, the, and, the, and anyway, we, we, we are now... Uh, Segwaying into the the, the, the other thing everybody remembers about uh, this film is its extreme violence. Mm. Um, is this something we think has over the years changed? It now isn't quite as, as shocking or as disruptive as it was. Mm. There's a uh, a very peculiar sense that we get things like that shot of the girl's face pressed up against the glass, uh, which is literally pushing it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, you know, this is, it's very hard to remember the, the shock impact this actually had 
at the time. I mean, of course, when I saw it, a lot of what we're about to see now was actually taken out in the uh, in the in the UK version and in the American version to some degree. I think. Although I have to say, my memory is that those it, losing a couple of inserts of knives did not make this sequence any the less no. uh, shocking or shattering or strange or upsetting. In fact. Sometimes, uh, uh, this is real sacrilege to say, the censors helped because they took out a few of the dodgier effects. Mm. Um, the, the, the kind of rubbery prosthetics, which don't look as good now as they might have done then. Mm. Um, now we're building up to, again, what Dario would always uh, call, um, he wanted uh, the film to begin in the way most horror films ended. <laughs> and he thought that by actually putting what was essentially a final sequence at yeah. the very beginning, you wouldn't really know what to expect or what was coming and therefore be more shocked. I think this is absolutely beautiful, oh, Liz. That I is mean, astonishing. It's, this is yeah. one of the all-time amazing scenes yeah. in horror, I think. So, so previously, Argento was famous for using his own hands to play the murderer. I assume that's not his hairy arm, because it looks <laughs> uh, a, a little more gym-toned than the Argento I think of. Yes, probably not. I mean, I think he just uses that for his Jallo work. I don't think it's a case for his more supernatural stuff. I love the vivid red of this, too. Yes, I mean, it doesn't look at all like blood. Absolutely, and no, I think that's it's... one of the most vital things to mention about this, because it's all about stylization. Yeah. And I think that's what's so brilliant. And of course, the double whammy here of, you know, the second victim being completely without faith. I mean, that looks pretty crappy now, but at the time, it was amazing. Yeah. I thought, you know, I mean, that really was. By the end of this scene, you're just reeling in your cinema. But it is very unlike, for instance, the the, the superficially similar death scenes that you saw in The Omen, mm. which were all about the shock. This is all about the look. Uh, mm. It's. Yeah, and, and in, in many ways, the colour of this wall is as offensive to the eye, isn't it, as, as the, the red of the blood. This is a film that has a lot of red in it, we have to say, um, uh, rather than a lot of blood. Mm. But anyway, should we backtrack to the, the origins of the, the story, which is rather unusual? In terms of, so where does this come from? Oh, dear, this is one of those things, isn't it? I mean... I've heard so many stories about the inception of this film from like five different people. It actually gets sort of more convoluted. The I think the more it goes on. I mean, I think I would love to have been there at the time. Of course, the very first film I covered in production of Dario's was Tenebrae, so I wasn't around for Suspira and Inferno. I wish I had. Inferno, especially the sequel to Suspira, I wish I'd been on that one. But um, here, uh, at this time, I mean... Dario was having uh, a relationship with the star of uh, Deep Red, um, Dario Nicolodi, of course. He'd met her um, because of an Elio Petri film, uh, because Property is Now Theft, I think it was called. I can't remember the Italian title exactly. Um, in 1973. I mean, mainly because Dario was totally nude all the way through it. I think anyone who saw <laughs> that film would have been quite straight, quite taken by that aspect of it. Anyway, he rang up the producer, um, the director, Elio Petri, and said, who is that actress? I've never seen her before. Uh, famously, they got on like a house on fire. Um, he cast her in Deep Red as Gianna Brezzi. Um, their relationship began. Um, Asia, their daughter, of course, uh, came out of that particular union. And I know that Daria at the time, um, although she liked the, the Jello pictures, 
she sort of wanted him to sort of move into a different direction. And I think the whole uh, supernatural side of things. I mean, Daria makes a very big deal out of being a white witch. Um, the, one of the very first things she ever said to me when I when I met her was like, well, well, I can do white magic. I mean, and you better, you know, not cross me because I can do certain nasty things. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I never believed it. I don't think that's white magic. I think that's black magic. But <laughs> well, anyway, we're now she, in trouble. She yeah. says she, she's, uh, she was into it. She was a white sorceress. And that's where her interest lay. I mean, she was uh, she, she would read up on all of that stuff, which is um, where she read up on, of course, Thomas de Quincey books. She would read all that philosophical stuff. You know what the Italians were like <laughs> in the 70s, all very sociopolitico and proletariat and all that nonsense. <laughs> um, so as a result of that, and the thing is, with Dari, of course, she was very wealthy. Um, so was Dario, to be honest with you, they both come from a very wealthy background, so they have that to prove, you know. That they, 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 yeah, they're left wing in the way only rich people can be left wing. You've got it exactly. You know, oh my God, I'm so broke. I'm going to my island in Capri to get over it. It's one of those. <laughs> um, and so with Dario, um, she sort of, I think, led. Um, Dario towards uh, a more supernatural thing. I mean, this is very unlike any film that was being made in Italy at the moment. We must actually say <laughs> that too, I think. I mean, what were we in at the moment? We were in terrible Edwige Fennec uh, comedies. We were in Nazi horror, weren't yeah. we? And we were in sort of like on the early days of the cannibal yeah. exploitation there were those, movie. The, the nearest things to that sort of wave of exorcist devil type movies, but they were all very heavily Catholic, whereas this has no Catholicism at all, uh, which is actually really unusual for an Italian supernatural horror picture. <laughs> it's true. I think that's them, though. Both. <laughs> anyway, so Daria, um, her grand, she she always used to tell this story um, about her grandmother, who uh, lived in France, was a lover of Jean Cocteau, and um, always told her bedtime stories when she wanted to frighten Daria um, about the time when she attended a school in Switzerland on the Swiss border with Germany. And she's and Daria always made a big deal out of never saying what the name of the school was because it was so terrifying. And if she said it, she was going to be cursed. But that it began with a D. I always remember her saying that. And basically witchcraft was on the curriculum. So everyone who went to this school, uh, girls' school, um, weren't really studying, you know, music or conservatory or, ball or ballet. They were, you know, learning the black arts. Sort of like, I suppose, now, like a Harry Potter sort yeah. of situation. Um, so, you know, this was like Hogwarts, you know, but sort of like in the old school. Anyway, um, her... Grandmother was so terrified by this place. You know, she'd say there was music at night playing, there was incantation she'd hear behind walls. She was terrified, and she didn't stay there very long. Anyway, so it always made an impression on her. And when Dario heard this story, according to Dario, he went, wow, what a great idea. Now, if you speak to Dario about this story, he says that it all stems back from when he was a child, and his own mother used to read stories, and his grandmother used to sort of read stories about witches and how he would have a, a nightmare often about um, his headmistress of his school being a witch who would bite his head off. So you've got these two things coming together. Now, Daria still swears blind that Daria ripped her off completely. Um, I think right up to about five years ago, she would actually become quite nasty and vociferous over it. Um, Arzia, of course, would often say that she'd catch them when she was growing up, just screaming at each other about who actually started this film. <laughs> and uh, so there's three sides to every story, isn't there? There's probably Dario's, there's Dario's and the real event. I mean, 
Daria put her imprint on this story so much that I think most people believe her side of it now. And it is the one I would tend to because, I mean, let's be honest, Dario isn't exactly um, very good when it comes to giving other people credit. I mean, everything, right up into his new film, Jallo. I mean, you'd never know it was written by anybody else. It actually says, a Dario Argento written and directed film. And then way down the credit list it says, oh, and also, you know. This um, is actually rather unusual for one of his films in that it has female main characters as mm. well. So that that sort of inclines you to, to think at least there is a different viewpoint in constructing the story. Mm. Uh, because all his previous films have been about men who are in the, the position of the heroine here who then who investigate. Here we do have a, a woman who is, sort of, or in fact, all, the whole narrative is driven by women, isn't it? Every man in this film is useless, uh, which which is a kind of uh, a version of 1970s feminism, I suppose. <laughs> well, I mean, that's one thing that a lot of people don't give Dario credit for. I mean, the, the, the feminism in his yeah. movies. Yeah. I love that little moment, uh, names that begin with uh, S's are the names of snakes. <laughs> Again, yeah. that's one yeah. of the reasons why it... it Dario con uh, conceived this as like a fairy tale. I mean, it's a very famous story, I think, that um, he wanted to cast all the dancers around 13, 11, 12, 13 years old. And, of course, his producers, especially in Germany, said, you can't do that. It's going to look like, well, suspect. Schulmarchen report. Yes, Ballet absolutely. School. Yeah. So, as a result of that, he was forced to cast older and have the, well, the girls around 18, 19, 20. And, but I think... In the dialogue, especially, um, he still keeps it quite childish, and that's a very good example of that, I think. And also, you you won't notice it in the production design quite yet, but all the door handles on the doors are, are placed a bit further up to reduce the, all the actors and actresses down in size to make them more childish. He's always said that this is his Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, um, whereas Inferno is Hansel and Gretel. So you're keeping that whole sort of fairy tale thing. So I've got to mention Miguel Bosé has just come into the picture here. Um, anybody who's who, who would know anything about uh, disco music will realise that he actually went on to become quite a big singer <laughs> with, uh, what was it, Brava Muchachos is my favourite song of his. I have to mention it. And also yeah. he's the uh, he's the son of Lucio Bosé, of course, who was quite famous in Italian circles um, for being in uh, two movies, Something Creeping in the Dark and Legend of Blood Castle, because she played Elizabeth Bathory, didn't she? Yeah, he later on went and did a few other other film roles. He's in La Reine Margot with Aja Argento. That's uh, true. But not much else. He played Lorca on Spanish television. So he's, he's kept... That kind of dreamy romantic sort of he is in fact notionally the hero of this film. He is. You won't be seeing much more of him though, <laughs> uh, because this isn't a film that really requires a hero. And let's be honest, it doesn't really require a story. I mean, <laughs> essentially this is three lines, isn't it? A ballerina goes to a dance school in Germany. Oh, it's run by a coven of witches. Yeah. And that's what they discover. So yeah. no matter how else you sort of disguise it. That's essentially the story. I mean, there isn't anything else going. It's all about the wallpaper. <laughs> Which is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like a couple of rolls of that. <laughs> and indeed the hairstyles in this particular scene as well, isn't it? And here we go. This is a classic Argento section, isn't it? When, you know, I know I've seen something. Yes. What is it she said? I mean, it's a very, very, um, you know, yeah. one of his sort of signatures now. Yeah, he, uh, I mean, it's a big thing in Bird with the Crystal Plumage, his first film, and he repeats it over again. It's uh, his way 
way of, of approaching the the now you see it now think about it uh, thing. and usually he plays fair deep red has a, a particularly astonishing use of actually showing you the solution mm. way before you get it some of the others play a little less fair I, I think the thing here is it's a distraction because the solution means nothing it's very, <laughs> I mean I, I I've seen this film numerous times I'm not quite sure what the significance of what she overhears really is <laughs> now this this scene here of the battle yeah. I mean now look at Miguel Bosé I mean I'm sorry this is just terrible I mean I, it's like Jessica Harper always said to me he said the last thing Dario was interested in in any of the actors was their dance ability he said none of that was actually meant to mean anything at all and I think this really yes. shows you I mean these people wouldn't have lasted out of kindergarten with that yes. well presumably they're basically studying to be witches so the ballet is just on the side except we we assume uh, Susie is a, a seriously a ballerina she's the one who's the mistake oh no we've got to mention Alida Valley and, oh, and Joan Bennett here. Who, who are both astonishing in this film and in both cases they're sort of career revivals Joan Bennett probably now isn't quite as as well remembered as Rita Hayworth or Jane Russell or Betty Davis but she was an authentic Hollywood legend I mean she made a run of great films with Fritz Lang who she also had a relationship with um, particularly Woman in the Window and Scarlet Street which are astonishing film noir you should check out again she had her moment of horror divadom on the Dark Shadows TV <laughs> series which I think probably is what edged her into being a horror name for this she doesn't have much to do here but just her presence is a link with classic hollywood in the way that alida valley's presence links you i suppose with the third man but also with a a really interesting run of of italian pictures Mm. i mean uh she's also in les yeux sans visage and lisa and the devil so she has a Sort of horror credits as well that establish her. Um, um, Joan Bennett yeah. is obviously cast because of the Fritz Lang connection. I mean, Dario is an avowed Fritz Lang fan, as we all know. Yeah. I mean, you know, yes. Rudolf Schindler, who plays Professor Milius, was in the Testament of Dr. Mabuse in 1933, <laughs> which is really reaching back into the Lang back catalogue. <laughs> yeah. no, here's another one of my favourite yes. scenes. Yeah. I love this. I mean, you know, just, just this is just so mm. simple to me, mm. and yet it's so effective. And we will talk about the music a bit later on, which is one of the reasons why this whole thing works. But, I mean, you know, okay, she's been hit by a shaft of light. I mean, but it's just... Yeah, it almost has a sort of Star Wars-y feel there, doesn't Mm. it? But uh, I always wonder, what does Argento tell his actors is happening when he's staging these scenes? Which I assume on the set do sound as ridiculous as we're just going to hit with you some light love you know I, I, well you know i've seen dario on every set since since tenebrae and to be honest with you to watch him work is quite amazing i mean everyone always mentions how sort of like animated he is um he has this favorite thing of when he's not quite sure what he's doing he'll walk off into the the, the side of the studio or the location and, and go walk around in circles and you can see him literally thinking on his feet and then he'll come back and all be like you do this you do this and the camera's going to do that do that i mean i find him quite amazing to watch i mean it's one of the reasons why i i actually go on his sets because i mean i'm never bored you know with most people they're all huddled around a video monitor you know especially these days you know you can't see anybody dario is actually out there telling people and i'm sure i mean what jessica harper told me here was like his, he, he said that you know it was like do this move here do that so he's literally sort of like um manipulating her all the way through the ones also the fact that she probably didn't understand a word of what anybody else was saying so she needed somebody 
to, to be guided by. I mean, back to Alida Valley, I must mention the fact that um, I think Alida is in it mainly because um, Dario's mother was a very famous photographer, Elder Luxardo, and she would take uh, beautiful portraits of all the, the very famous divas of Italian cinema, and Alida was one of them. And Dario and her knew each other, of course, and I think that's one of the reasons why she's in it. And I, he's always said that he owes his mother his sense of... Um, filming women to make them at their most beautiful mm. and I think here is a very good example I mean I, I, I do think it, they all look great in it I mean you know I mean and I think he's learnt that from his mother on how to light and how to you know give them the femme fatale features that I think that they need I mean Miguel Bosa I'm sorry <laughs> he just makes me laugh yeah. you know, so camp yeah. I just can't believe it anyway so why Jessica Harper. I mean, I went and saw this film because she was in it yeah. after having seen her work in Phantom of the Paradise and Inserts, which struck me as being both astonishing and different. Well, that's, well, that's the reason she's in it. I mean, there is a, a lot of people... Well, one of the reasons why uh, Daria also walked away from this film was I think she was actually... She had written the, the, the part of Susie Pannion for herself. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. And I think once she realised that uh, Daria had no intention of giving her the part, um, for whatever reason, he's never mentioned this to me, um, I think she thought, right, I'm getting out now, I'm going to, you know, complain. That's another reason why I think she started complaining so much about the movie. And also I think um, Tina Romand was actually in the running mm -hmm. for this. Um, she was very famous at the time because of, uh, um, well, Jello fans will know her from Torso, um, but she'd also done uh, a few other bits and pieces. She was in Fellini Casanova um, around this time. But then, of course, I think the American side of things probably said, cast an American. And Phantom of the Paradise, the Brian De Palma film, was a huge hit in Italy. Um, Dario loved it. Um, obviously Jessica was the star and I think that's where the offer came from I mean Jessica always said that when she actually got the script she said well how have I got <laughs> why have they thought of me for this you know this person in Italy who I've never heard of and but she loved the script I mean she was she was very sensible Jessica I've always liked her career choices actually mm, I have yeah. to say um, she's not stupid in she a way that most of them were at this for time. a period she only appeared in cult movies. Yeah. I mean, she only worked with um, Brenda Palmer, Woody Allen. You yeah. know, I mean, she's in Love and Death and uh, Stardust Memories. She then she was astonishing, I think, in Pennies from Heaven. Shock much treatment. Underrated. Shock treatment. Love her in that. Yeah, she's great in that. Not a great film. And then she sort of stopped for a while. She has recently appeared, done little bits in things like Minority Report. Mm. Well, she married the head of 20th Century Fox. <laughs> so, I've, I mean, if I was her, I wouldn't want to work either, frankly. Yeah. I'd rather sit in my Beverly Hills mansion and just... Uh, which is where I actually did interview her. We went to her place there. Um, I, Strangely enough, um, I knew Jessica around the time of inserts because uh, she filmed it in London with Richard Dreyfuss, who was a good friend of mine at that time. And uh, so I got to know her quite well. If you could have told me that three years down the line she's going to be appearing in one of my my, my, my favourite director's films, I would have, could have you know, knocked me down with a feather. But uh, she she had a really good time on this movie, I think. I mean, she... she you know, she liked the idea of it. She, she could see what I think Dario was trying to do. And and she went with it. And, of course, her testament is that she's in one of the greatest movies, mm. yes, horror movies yeah. ever made. And I, I always think that it, it, the, the perception is, from having read the script to making this film is not very easy. I always think this is a movie that could not get made if somebody wrote it as a spec script mm. and tried to take it round the studios and explain just from the screenplay, what it was going to be. Mm. Um, and I would imagine the same would apply to casting it. 
uh, you could easily see somebody reading it think, well, there's actually nothing to do. I have nothing to say. I'm spending this whole film walking around. And the script doesn't tell you you're walking past amazing wallpaper. Uh, and if it did, many actresses would feel threatened by that. Mm. Uh, all the other act actresses, I think, were, were pretty sort of like famous around the you know in in the industry weren't they at that time yeah. I mean, they, they if you were going to sort of go to central casting italy i think this is who you'd probably come up with who were all around yeah. them like stefania cassini yeah she'd just done blood for dracula and actually um andy warhol's bad another quite interesting mm. picture uh, blood for dracula with Udo Kier, who's in it later and she alternated between uh, the likes of Bloodstained Shadow and and Novocento, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for for someone who frankly is a model, <laughs> actually had quite a good screen career in terms of the the odd bits and pieces she did. Strangely enough, I mean, again, I mean, Variety at the time of the production of this movie, um, it was made in sixteen weeks at the end of nineteen seventy six. I mean, on location in Germany. Um, and around Munich, Bavaria, all those places. But they did say at the time that Daria Nicolodi actually was supposed to be playing Stefania Cassini's role, yeah. but that she actually got out of it because she'd broken her ankle, um, which, again, is not true. I mean, all the lies that is around this movie is quite extraordinary to me. I mean, Claudio Argento, his brother and his producer, always said to me that this was one of the easiest films that he'd ever actually made with Dario. And he said the reason being that Dario actually stuck to the script. He said for once in his life, he actually sort of went, right, we're going to film this. He didn't mess around with it. He didn't change anything. Um, and he thinks that, I think that might be to do with Jessica, though, actually, because I think he actually felt that she had to have some sort of structure. He just couldn't say to her, you know, well, let's improvise or do this, which he often does, mm -hmm. I have to say. So I think this is one of his... And most structured films, um, it went very, very smoothly. Um, according to Claudio, a lot of them knew um, at the time that they were actually making something special. Um, he, he said there was a vibe about it. They, they, they could just feel it was going to be a success. He said it was the, the, the surest thing that he'd ever known on one of his brother's pictures. So I think that's quite interesting um, because that often isn't the case, uh, I, I think. Yeah, usually if people are really confident on the set, it's a disaster. It's a disaster. Yeah, yes, it's, it's like, true. But uh, another unusual thing about this is it's not shot in Italy, as you said. Mm. All his earlier films had been. He has subsequently made a few films like Phenomena, which are not Italian-based. But this w was a break for him. Um, we actually don't really know why. Mm. I, 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 do you know, I've never thought of asking him that. I just assumed it had something to do with the German co-production money. But, I but, mean, as you say, I mean, all, all the other movies were shot, you know, were co-production Germany too, so... Yeah. And merely having Udo Kier in it sort of counted as, as a sop to the German mm. market. Perhaps, but, perhaps the whole witchcraft, you know, the, I don't know, the woods, the, you know, the, the look of the Tanz Academy, which yeah. he found in Munich, Freiburg, it probably... You know, felt more fairy tale. Yes. Uh, yeah, no, I, I can see that you for for an Italian, say making a film in Rome is like realistic, isn't it? You're yes. going out outside. Whereas going to Germany it gives you that sort of Transylvania vibe. It doesn't does. It? I, it, mean, it, I think there's that to yeah. it. And I think that it, scary things happen in other countries. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and it's not, I have to say, anything like 
the Germany you might see in, I don't know, the Bader-Meinhof film, is it? I mean, there is no suggestion that there is... A, I mean, I've, I've heard him say that one of the squares was once used for a Nazi rally, so he felt that that gave a, a, an aura of evil, but actually it's just another big German town. I mean, mm. there's much more of a sense of the medieval about it than the, than the 1930s. All oh, these maggots, by the way, most of them were grains of rice, of course. <laughs> these are grains of rice just being <laughs> I mean, Germana Natale did the uh, special effects of this movie. Around this time, he was like uh, Dario's go-to man. Like He did Deep Red, he did opera. Um, I think he did a pretty good job on this, actually, considering the fact that Italy doesn't really have, um, and still doesn't, a very strong makeup uh, you know, background. I mean, you know, you've only got to look at the work of Sergio Stivaletti to realise that sometimes. But uh, this is lovely. Now, this to me, I mean, look at look at the, the palette there. Yeah, the look yeah. is just so beautiful. I mean, I, who came up with that wallpaper? I mean, Giuseppe uh, uh, Bazan, of course, did did the production design of this. Um, he was. Uh, Again, Dario's go-to person, he did Tenebrae. And his son, Davide, actually went on to do a lot of Dario's latter films. In fact, Giallo, Davide did. So, you know, he's kept with the, you know, the same people sort of throughout, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah, and here I noticed he's using uh, black and white wallpaper but giving everybody lovely dresses to give you the, the spots of colour. Yeah, uh, The standard of nightwear among these ballet students is very high. Is <laughs> uh, Everybody looks as if they're ready for a photo shoot rather than... Yeah, no-one's got their hair up in curlers. Or is it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this was all... All the interiors, of course, were shot at De Paulis in Rome. So um, De Paulis being quite famous uh, for a lot of Lucio Fulci movies I mean going back years I mean you know it, it was again one of the main studios Dario would film in um, opera I mean, he shot the end of opera there um, when the whole place goes up in flames so you know this was uh, it's on the outskirts of Rome bit of a trek to get to sometimes but hey you know and maybe it's a it's a good time to take a look at the uh, the music, which is such a huge part of this mm. this picture. Argento started out using reasonably traditional Ennio Morricone soundtracks for his films. They are strange and and, and memorable, but he for, he forged an alliance with Goblin or the Goblins or mm. however they want to call themselves on on Deep Red, and it's almost this film seems built around its music in a way that the earlier films weren't. It must be... Um, another sort of very famous sort of apocryphal story about Suspiria is that uh, a lot of the goblin music was uh, composed beforehand and a lot of the actors uh, acted to while it was being played. While that is true to sort of to some extent in some sequences it was just a very rough track that Goblin provided. It wasn't the full-blown soundtrack as we know it. So... Um, so they did do a guideline, but of course, what they played on set is completely, totally different to what we're actually here. I mean, ever since I've known Dario, he's always been a fan of heavy metal, of progressive rock. I mean, Deep Purple, his most famous, uh, he loved them. He, I mean, there was a time, I remember when we did Two Evil Eyes, that he closed the film down once just because he wanted to go and see the Rolling Stones um, at some Pittsburgh arena. So um, that goes to show where his uh, sort of musical tastes are. And I know he wanted Deep Purple... Uh, to compose the music for uh, Deep Red, which of course they couldn't do um, contractually, they couldn't do it. And, and 
for every reason you'd think why would deep purple do that so he was he obviously was looking um a bit nearer home for sort of, sort of some sort of like heavy metal band and of course goblin with that with that band so uh, claudio simonetti of course was one of the main founders of it in fact he's still you know going around <laughs> sort of like being the the man who was goblin um and uh, Dario and him, they sort of got together, and this was yeah. deep red music was the result, which I, which I thought was fantastic. But I think this is actually even better. I mean, it really is very evocative. It's one of the very few uh, progressive rock soundtracks. It, I think it might be the first. I, I, Tubular Bells wasn't really, was it, with The Exorcist? No, because that's a pre-existing uh, album that was laid true, onto the film. True. There are a few Tangerine Dream scores. Like yeah. The Valley Obscured by Clouds and maybe a couple there of other things. There is that. And so, but I mean, I think this was the, the most... Uh, inspired use of this sort of music wasn't it? i mean it was just he so also, he gives himself a music credit did he mm. earn it i don't think so um i think again that was him just stamping his brand on everything he did in fact on the album cover which came out with this i mean it's a pop-up cover and it's like it's goblin with dario in the middle of them and then you <laughs> it's just I, I know i mean you know i i can't imagine dario going into the recording studio and humming and like, a couple of bars <laughs> banging a triangle yeah. in the background hissing witch which is the, 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 the thing that certainly when I came out of the cinema there were lots of girls going witch at each other Absolutely. and I think and, <laughs> and of course um, the heavy breathing I think is Claudio Simonetti isn't uh-huh. it? or is witch uh, I, right. I think it's yeah. all Claudio I think um, of course this is one of the last films that uh, well for a while that Goblin did because then Claudio went off to the disco field and did a lot of good disco tracks. <laughs> Sorry, that's my other side of All things right. coming up. Um, and if Argento went to, to Keith Emerson for, uh, for Inferno, Inferno, so he actually managed to, to, to land a, uh, a, a reasonably a big person. name rock, rock guy. But, you know, yeah. but Goblin is still around. I mean, yeah. as, I, as we speak, they played three weeks, uh, yeah. three days ago in And in where's London. Keith Emerson these days? <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, it is a vital component of this. And again, hugely influential. I mean, no one had done this before, which is why it felt so so original and unique, wasn't it? It was, and it was. A, I suppose Phantom of the Paradise, Rocky Horror Picture Show, it had rock scores for films which were notionally horror films. Uh, but this, I can't. I, you're right. I cannot think of anything except, yeah, really bizarre movies like Joseph Losey's The Damned that, mm. that use rock music for scary before this. Uh, we have to say that, uh, as with a great many wonderful innovations, uh, it betokened horrors to come because uh, uh, the 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 blight of horrible synthesized scores in 1980s horror films sort of does, does set in here. And some of Argento's music choices it, later in his career, I, I think we can all feel were debatable, mm, um, particularly yes. the, the the tracks in Demons. I, think, I remember. Yes. Yeah, yes. And, uh, well, again, phenomena. Yeah. The, I mean, that was to sort of do a tie-in album, wasn't it? Uh, which <laughs> was like the trendy thing at the yes. time yeah. I, mean, I, I mean these the, the, the Deep Red and, and Suspira albums have sort of gone on and on and on haven't they I mean they just they, they keep being remixed I mean there's an, a Deep Red house version I've heard I've got the, the Suspiria remix I mean it's just not and there's loads of bands who actually call themselves that and have like been inspired by it too so it, it is quite extraordinary I think I look at that I mean Yes. This lovely plush velvet. Yes, more wallpaper, <laughs> <laughs> which, which seems to be. Have we ever worked out who these people are? <laughs> the, the, the the scary maid and the little Lord Fauntleroy character. <laughs> I mean that he looks almost like 
he could have dropped him from deep red. Yes, it? yeah. It's the same look. It's the yeah. same feel. Yeah. So it's it's unbelievable. To me. Exactly. Here we are. There. Now I think is actually a very good time to actually talk about um, the the photography, the cinematography. Mm -hmm. I mean, Luciana Tovoli, of course, is the I think the maestro responsible for this. Um, Dario first went to Luigi Cavalle, who did uh, Deep Red for him, but Luigi just didn't couldn't get his head around what Dario wanted. You know, the very prime colours, the the very vivid uh, red, blue, and green palette. Um, that's exactly what he wanted, and Luigi didn't get it in any shape, size, or form. So Tovoli, who was actually more well known at the time for his sort of very ultra realism. Uh, look, I mean, he did uh, Antonioni's *The Passenger*, for example. Um, he said, "Well, look, if I can actually experiment with this, and if I can come up with the look that I think you might like, then I'll join you for this film." And so, for about, I think, four months before pre-production started, um, Luciano went off and sort of was testing on um, old Technicolor stocks, on using really old-fashioned lighting, you know, like the tissue papers and the velour and the, uh, the massive arc lights. And he hit on what he thought was a very vibrant look by using mirror reflections. So all over the set here, um, out of obviously camera range, are masses of mirrors all refracting the light on top of each other to make it as sharp and as like vivid as possible. I mean, the joke on this one was they all thought Luciano was like the worst narcissist because he had so many mirrors around <laughs> and he was looking at himself in them. But that's what I think gives the film such a... Of course, Dario saw the tests and, you know, Luciano invited Dario to a special screening of his test footage. And, of course, da the, the story is that Dario just literally went up to the screen and touched it and just, I just said, I can't believe that you've actually come up with exactly what I want. And, of course, Tovoli took over and, I think, gave the look that is one of the best in the world. Of course, he, he only worked with Dario again in, with Tenebrae. And and look at that, how he what he did there. The look there was amazing. Yeah, and, but that's a very different look because that's almost all white, isn't mm. it? Whereas this is all reds and blues. It is. It was astonishing that he did that. And I mean, he always used to say, Tovoli, that uh, he actually appropriated this look for single white female. I mean, there's a certain scene in that movie where the two stars, uh, Bridget Fonda and Jennifer Jason Lee, are, uh, are in, uh, I think, in a room together and it goes black. Uh, it doesn't go, it goes blue, very vivid. And he used uh, the Suspiria look for that movie. So he's sort of, he's no fool. But, I mean, this is a, a beautiful, it's like jewel colours, mm -hmm. isn't it? It's like so vibrant. I think that was one of the reasons why I was so disappointed with Mother of Tears. Um, you know, which is the third part of his third mother's part trilogy. of the mother's. Yeah. I mean, why didn't it have this look? I mean, what the, one of the reasons we were also looking forward to it is because, uh, you know, Suspiria and Inferno had such distinctive looks and atmospheres. I mean, this is so vibrant. Inferno was so comic book. I mean, it should have had some of that, and he had no excuse because it could have been done by CGI. That's all we have to remember yes. now, of course. All this stuff. It's could've... done with coloured lights. Isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's people holding up bits of transparent cellophane uh, over lights. That's how you get this, as opposed to any kind of computer tweaking. Um, what, do you think there's any influence from the, the kind of rich look of the Mario Bava horror films of Definitely. the 60s? Uh, 
a blood and black lace comes to mind as as a precedent for this. Well, Darry, of course, is a film critic in the sixties, and he one of the reasons he decided to become a film critic was because he wanted to review Mario's films, who, of course, he didn't think was getting enough credit. And yes, most definitely. I mean, in his latter years, he's always said that Ricardo Freda was more of a, an inspiration visually to him because <laughs> he thought Mario's look was way too. Um, what do you say? It's made too obvious, I think, yeah. is what he would say. Um, again, I think it's the obvious look that he's appropriated here, and that's one of the reasons why this works. <laughs> I mean, I think... So he's definitely got, uh, you know, the Barber uh, visual sensibility, I think, here. And, of course, the irony is that because Daria isn't in the film, I mean, she went off to do Mario Barber's shock while this was actually mm. on. So, um, you know, she thought, well, if I'm not going to be in one Master of Terrors... <laughs> Uh, horror movie. I'm going to certainly be in another. Yeah. So and that's what she to did. To be fair, she did get a better role in, in Shock than she would have got in this. Probably. It is interesting, though, isn't it? Because, you know, I mean, it just goes to show how I think, you know, their love affair was too hot not to cool down, yes. I actually think, is in the, in the in to use somebody else's language there. But, I mean, it was a case of that. And I think the writing was definitely on the wall. Yeah. Um, if he didn't want to cast her in Suspiria... <laughs> Well, yeah, yes. and he has subsequently killed her in various imaginative <laughs> ways in every film they've made together, yeah. uh, to the point that you would think she'd get the point. But <laughs> oh, lovely! I mean, this is coming up to. Uh, I, I, I always used to say about this film and Inferno that you could actually freeze frame any part of it, and it, you could hang it on the wall mm. in an art gallery because I think it is that beautiful, <laughs> and I think it is that amazing to sort of look at. Although a lot of it is to do with images in motion as well, because the camera never says so. That actually, that shot's taken from James Whale's *The Old Dark House*, but um, uh, and I think he took it from Paul Lenai's *Cat and the Canary* in the first place. It's a uh, the classic prowling down a, a corridor with the fluttering curtains, um, old dark house horror movie imagery, mm. uh, and this is an old dark house movie, which were actually rather unfashionable in the seventies. Maybe there are old dark house elements in The Exorcist, but um, even there, it's supposed to be an anachronism. It's strange that supernatural things are happening in the modern day. Here's Here a few, oh, here's the moment of German local colour, <laughs> <laughs> which, which we hadn't even <laughs> remembered. <laughs> uh, it's quite striking, it's quite odd. Uh, we wonder why the blind guy is looking at it, but... <laughs> Yes, I mean this is the uh, this is the lead into the to one of the another very famous sequence. Uh, what we haven't mentioned actually, is, of course, is the whole Thomas de Quincey. Yes, this is an odd thing. It, in theory, the the invented mythology of the three mothers, which is actually not expounded terribly in depth here, but you get much more of it. Inferno comes from uh, Thomas de Quincey's sequel to his famous uh, work, The Confessions of an English Opium Eater, uh, and there's a, a a tiny little short story called Lavana and Our Ladies of Sorrow, um, which is actually set in Oxford. Uh, not, mm. not a terribly uh, <laughs> well-known haunted destination, but it's to do with three Roman goddesses who De Quincey basically invented, um, uh, although he says that they are on the pattern of the three fates and the three furies and the three gorgons. Uh, and we have uh, the... the Marta Suspiriorum, the mother of size, who's our character here. Marta Tenebrarum, mother of darkness, who turns up in the next film. And Marta Lacrimarum, the uh, mother of tears, who uh, turned up in the very, very tardy and, and as as we both think, disappointing uh, capper to the trilogy uh, many years later. Uh, 
it's an interesting uh, little piece of story. And if you look it on up, up online, which you can, you'll find that it it illuminates and reflects um, what happens in the films. However, um, basically, they take the names and do whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As one would expect. Yes. But, yeah. I mean, but if, you know, Dario and Dario would have read that book, though. I mean, would have read the story because they would. Have, it was something that would have come into mm-hmm. their to their scope of reference. Here's one of the most famous scenes of Suspiria, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, this was sort of set in the uh, Konigsplatz Max Vorstadt in Munich. Um, very famous for its like Hitler rally sort of like mm-hmm. atmosphere. One of the reasons why I think you know, Dario put it, placed it here to give it some sort of more German irony that's <laughs> yeah. going on. Um, again, this was one of, the, one of the very last scenes to be filmed. Uh, Tovoli always said that they knew they were going to have a problem with the sequence. And as a result, they kept it right to the last minute because they knew uh, it was going to be hugely sort of like uh, chaotic and, or- and an organisational nightmare, which of course is what it was. I mean, I've never ever been able to spot the cable that's in this uh, <laughs> because basically the camera is going to swoop down from the eagle on top of the building there. Uh, again, in today's sort of like visual language, you could yeah. have done it, you know, uh, with a computer. <laughs> then they had to come up with so many different ways of doing it. And this was basically totally sliding a camera down a cable that just as it got to the bottom would trigger a mechanism that then would actually make sure it didn't actually crash yeah. into the ground. Yeah. Um, they had three cameras just in case uh, one of them broke. And of course, true to Dario form, they all broke. Um, but they actually got uh, the, uh, the, the shot, which I think, and here we go. Now you, you know, which I think, I mean, again, it looks like nothing special now, but in those days, um, it's like the Tenebrae roof yeah. uh, camera over the mm-hmm. roof. I mean, that was absolutely amazing. And there's a, the, the Raven thing in opera. And all of them required new equipment to be built. And, and although this is an obvious Argento obsession, it seems also a Tovoli obsession because uh, of the, the final shot of The Passenger, absolutely. which is one of the, uh, um, the great sort of camera gimmicks ever. Um, I've, I've always said that there is a, a, a sort of an underappreciated sort of um, crossbreeding between what Argento does and what Antonioni did. It seems to me that, that Antonioni is the secret master that Argento quite often cribs from. I mean, I mean, not simply in terms of uh, borrowing his cameraman and casting his favourite actors, but uh, even simple things like camera moves uh, mm. that. He, he, is, he watches Antonioni's films and makes a lot of notes. Well, blow uh, up, obviously. Yes. No, that, but no, and that's this is the uh, the sting in the tail to this particular yes. thing. How can this possibly happen in this yeah. completely empty square? Yeah. I'd love to have known how they actually did keep it that empty. Empty, yes. I mean, <laughs> because I mean, the, the most amazing thing about Dario's pictures is that you know the crowds that gather. I mean, I mean, with Mother of Tears, that they actually got quite nasty and they were throwing <laughs> things at the camera. You know, really badly. I mean, so I assume you would have had less trouble in Germany. Yes, but, uh, even so. And and there are two people who notice. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a. Um, this almost sets up a running joke that pays off in Fer- in Inferno, where the in Inferno the, pe- the the person running to help the the victim actually is coming to kill him, uh, whereas here the, uh, it is somebody genuinely helpful. Mm. Another beautifully composed shot, actually using mirror a mirror. Hmm. That's good. Uh, 
uh, you know, Jessica Harper. I mean, I just think she looks amazing. She, yeah, she has one of the, the most beautiful faces of 1970s cinema, uh, soon to become among the most unfashionable faces in 1980s cinema, tragically. <laughs> um, that the Women just stop looking like that in films. Yeah. We're fine. We're fine. That's an Aubrey Beardsley print on the wall there. Another uh, Fanda Siecla decadent touch. Now here's, of course, is like the the the, the clue place centre stage here, isn't it? It's like you know the iris. I mean that you, that she heard vague reference to early on. So. I mean, what's that all about? You yes, know I mean? yeah. <laughs> the fact that is, it literally the centre of the screen. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, he was never not uh, too obvious. But I often want, you know, this is interesting to me because I mean, uh, a lot of the uh, Italian actors and actresses were are dubbed, of course, in this, and uh, and there was a whole industry going along at the time. Um, you know, Nick Alexander was like Dario's main man, who would be the director of all the the, the dubbing. Um, this is definitely Jessica's voice. Because mm, it's a very distinctive voice. Yeah, is it? And it's mm. definitely uh, Joan Bennett's, I think, although some of them, I think, were... Very well, congratulations. That's definitely her voice there. Um, she's almost reading cue cards there. <laughs> I remember Jessica saying that uh, she learnt so much from, from, um, from, from Joan because Joan will keep giving her really amazing instructions like, you know, never smoke when there's a cameraman around and, <laughs> and you mustn't just always sit down on, the, uh, on, your, on your chair with your legs crossed. Never do this. It was almost like a whole lesson... In, in how to sort of go through 40s glamour. <laughs> so she said she really, she loved working with, with, with Joan. I know that. And of course it was Joan's last film, wasn't it? Yes, she made a few TV things afterwards. She's in This House Possessed, but this is, she kind of retired. Yeah. Uh, I think previously she was in Gidget Gets Married, so presumably <laughs> her career options weren't that great. So, yeah. And here's the cat people scene. <laughs> um, uh, and actually for a, a horror film that is so visually st stunning. This is remarkably free of homages to earlier horror films in this sense, but I think there is a moment here that is that is influenced by uh, the the famous swimming pool scene in the Val Luton movie. Mm. I mean, again, I mean, uh, that's all cues that you would... I mean, look at that. But it's all just completely yes. done with, like, that red stripe. I mean, that's all they've done to this particular, <laughs> you know, but to actually just visually tie it in with the rest. And I think that, you know, it's just very simple things like that that really make it work. No, but you're right, though. This is actually definitely the uh, the Val Luton reference. But anyway, back to the, the, the dubbing voices. I'm always fascinated by who's, whose voice is coming out of whose mouth here. So, <laughs> I mean, well, I mean... I so get... give us a rundown. Who is actually speaking? <laughs> well, there's a couple of, um, you know, people that uh, are, are worth noting because Nick Alexander did use... Um, a, a, a roster of, uh, of famous people. I mean, Rosetta Cavalletta, for example, she was uh, the person who would do Anouke May's voice in Sodom and Gomorrah. I know that she did a lot of stuff uh, on the Joan Bennett side in, in Italy. Um, and then there was Vittoria Febri, who also dubbed Veronica Lazar in Inferno. And one, a, a person I knew quite well, actually, Simona Rizzo, who ended up marrying uh, the Italian director Ricky Tognazzi and becoming a director and a, an actress in her own right. So she would often, you know, she's a lot of the voices in this and that's, I think, how she got started. And Emanuela Rossi, who was uh, one of the voices from Deep Red, did a few of the background names. And, of course, one of our 
English favourites, which is Adrian Poster, turned yeah. up in this. I mean, you know, the actress from Up the Junction. And... Yeah, although she has an Italian name, she is not <laughs> who you'd think of for this sort of thing. I mean, she was a, she was a British pop star. Yeah, she, and, she... and a, a comedienne and a sort of famous for bubbly blonde roles. Yeah, so and there she... are no bubbly blondes in this film. <laughs> so there were all those people. I mean, you know, so there was this whole sort of like industry uh, behind this one. And of course, Nick Alexander very famously um, impacted on Suspiria because um, he told Dario that Deep Red at two hours, ten minutes was way too long. And what the hell was he thinking about trying to release that on an international market? And that's the reason why I think this film is actually much, much shorter because he's realised... Because if he wasn't going to cut it in Italy, the Americans or whoever the distributors were in each territory were going to cut it. Yeah, as they had done with Deep Red. Yeah, which they did. And I think that he kept it to a more manageable length, which is one of the reasons why I think this sold quite spectacularly throughout the world um, because it was like a proper length for, uh, for a horror movie. And uh, this is probably a time to address another one of the great myths of any given classic horror film is people will tell you of scenes that got cut out because they were too disturbing. Uh, and my assumption is that this is the film that got made. There is no... Uh, you know, there were no great sequences abandoned um, or, uh, you know, uh, removed from every version. This is it, right? Yes. I mean, a lot of people made the mistake because the uh, American trailer said something along the lines of the only thing more frightening than the last 12 minutes of the spear is the first 92. So if you add that up, it's 104 minutes, which most people think, ah, hang on a minute, stacked up against the 98 or whatever, however it rhymes. Yeah. It's like, that means there's four minutes missing. <laughs> what is that? I mean, it's an, another apocryphal story that uh, Dario swears isn't true, but then he can change his mind. Um, is the fact that Miguel Bosé's character was cut in half by another <laughs> sheet glass um, and then the heart was just, he was going to be dancing and the, the glass was going to go through him and then his heart was just going to fall on the floor. Now, people would say that to me and I thought, mm, I'm not so sure about that because surely if you were going to film that, it would be in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it might actually have just been a storyboard, a vague idea that somebody else, you know, heard. He's never said that that was true to me, so I, d- I don't actually think that was right. Um, look at this. I mean, it's almost yes. like watching it in 3D, yes, isn't it? Yes, no, the you want, you want, That's what we yeah. want to see. We don't want Deep Red in 3D that Dario's just <laughs> yeah. announced. We want Suspiria in 3D. I think this would be brilliant to have yeah. done that. I mean, if he could do it himself properly. Yes. Well, it's almost like not. you don't have to wear the glasses. Yes, well... Yeah, you know, uh, uh, we'll we'll get to it later. It's the question of whether we trust Dario Argento with his backlist anymore. <laughs> is is a uh, something we we come to? Well, Although I think obviously this is a place to celebrate his achievements rather absolutely. than to that, lament his, his that, failings. That's the tragedy of Suspiria in many many ways. I mean, he's been trying to top it ever since. Well, and, uh, yeah, and I think that, that, but isn't that true of almost everybody who made a great horror film in the in the mm. the seventies? In many ways, I mean, Tobe Hooper's never matched Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'd argue John Carpenter hasn't matched Halloween. Yeah, it, mm. it's almost a sense that once you have done this, once you've hit one out of the park like this, there is an inevitable sort of moving away and uh, a sense that you've got to try and do something else. I do think, in fact, Inferno is a worthy companion piece to this. Mm. Uh, if, if you watch them back to back, it's actually almost unbearable because there is so much information thrown at you. Uh, but I think that that continues what Suspiria starts. Then Tenebrae goes and does something else. Mm. Um, and I think there is a feeling that I mean, as with a great many uh, art forms that reach points where you literally cannot go further than this. 
Uh, you cannot get more stylized. You cannot get more gruesome. Uh, you cannot get sort of more magical without estranging yourself so completely from you know, the normal conventions of what a horror film is that you end up not making a film that will work for actually a mass audience that embraced this. Uh, this was a success with people who wouldn't have gone to see an Italian art movie, who didn't know who Antonioni or Fellini were, who probably didn't even know who Argento or Mario Bava were. It clicked with a general horror audience. Um, and I don't remember people coming out saying, well, that was amazing, but what was the story? What's going on? Yeah, who are these people? Where do they live? <laughs> yeah, um, the sort of questions that you get when you see a film that fails to be Suspiria, a film that fails to be as strange and magical um, because all that is then left is the plot mm. uh, or the, the contrivances. Okay. Oh, oh. pause. <laughs> oh, no. We run out of tape. <laughs> oh, 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 we can carry it. Um, no, it, 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 I've always thought Suspiria was the millstone around mm -hmm. Dario's neck. And I mean, he's... he's and when Inferno didn't sort of make the money or do the business that they were obviously hoping, um, and he put the whole Three Mothers idea aside, um, it was almost like he didn't want to try because he knew it was probably on a hiding to nothing, really, wasn't it, a case of, I mean, how can he possibly uh, match this success? And I think that's... Um, I, I could often see it. And then, of course, when he did do Mother of Tears, uh, it was so not what anyone was expecting I think um, which uh, to, to speak up for a moment for for Mother of Tears what could he have done that would have delivered the expectations every, that people who loved the first two films had he would really have had to deliver uh, something that almost nobody could make um, um, if you'd read the original script it was all there it was so beautiful if he'd done some of that, but of course it was a budgetary thing, wasn't it? He was trying to do it on the cheap, and that was the most unfortunate thing. You can't do these things on the cheap. And that's what I think was the mistake there. Here's the, uh, one of the major, you know, this is an unusual death, isn't yes. it? This, this has never ever been sort of copied, yeah. because, it's just, because it's just so out well, there and think bizarre. think of it, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so out there and bizarre. Yeah. Although, you know, I mean, I think again, it's this is down to Dario sort of like being accused of misogyny again, isn't it? Here, I mean, you know, he's always accused of like killing off gorgeous women in the most horrible ways. Well, yeah, and to be fair, he's not accused of it; he does it. I mean, there's, um, I do think actually there is a there is a strange difference between this and some of his later films that I find harder to defend. And it's not to do with how gruesome they are. It's to do with how good the women look. Actually, I think, for instance, in a movie like uh, Sleepless, he tends to make all the women look like transvestites mm. in the first place. They look very harsh. They all look like cheap whores. Whereas here, the women do look like ethereal, fantasized, gorgeous, strange things. I mean, actually, I noticed earlier that, that Stefania Cassini was uh, elegantly puffing on a cigarette, which is something you don't see often in films. <laughs> and, and sort of makes her um, sort of human in a way, but uh, she is a, an astonishing creature rather than, a, as it were, a real person. Mm. Yeah, and why is there a room full of coils of steel wire ah, in a ballet school? But that's the beauty of this movie, yes. you don't even question it's, No, it's, yeah. Uh, in fact, this, this scene was quite dangerous uh, because it really did get quite out of hand. Um, it did actually call around her neck mm. here. 
and I know that uh, she was really quite upset with how this went. Of course, knowing Dario, he would have gone, just one more, keep yes, going, keep yeah, going, yeah. as they were sort of spraying the blood mm. on. So, yeah. you I, know. Be- I believe at one point Joan Bennett said that even Fritz Lang wasn't this cruel. <laughs> yeah, um, and considering that Fritz Lang duped her into thinking they were married at one point, <laughs> that's a fairly extreme statement. I, I, th- I think this is, I mean, this is just... Uh, I never really found this particularly scary. I always thought it was like more of a... a it's a, just odd, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and it's, it's supposed to be razor wire, but yeah. you can actually see there's no actual razors yeah. there. Yeah, well, except now um, there is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, the, the stereo... And, and it's the fact she comes back later... Um, although, I mean, we assume she's possessed or a zombie or whatever. It's not the end of her in this film. And so, therefore, it's an ordeal rather than a death. Mm. Yeah. Looking for Sarah. There's, here's the, uh, the, 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 the famous, I think, nipple outfit, which I oh, think right. most people <laughs> would remember it's... from this. Alida Valley. I mean, again, a through, a through to um, Inferno again, wasn't it? Yes. Um, and... I have to say one of, the, one of the things that if you are a, a big fan of Italian horror, you probably don't realise just how beautiful Alida Valley was as a younger woman because she she always played these kind of mannish Harridan mm. type roles, uh, and and here is is basically dressed as a man. <laughs> but uh, but uh, take a look at how, uh, what she looks like in the Third Man or, or the Paradigm Case, her Hitchcock credit, which I assume is another thing that that got her on Argento's radar, and she is an astonishingly beautiful woman. Even here, she is um, yeah, visually very striking. Mm. We have to mention also the fact that um, I think Daria was definitely going after a sort of a, a very old school um, composed look as well. I mean, you know, the, the, I think the idea of uh, the whole primal colours came yeah. from... Uh, I have to say, here is a great touchstone of Italian chic cinema, a white telephone. Yes. She's actually talking on one. <laughs> um, it, for devotees of Italian popular cinema, there was a, a craze in the 1930s for, the, for what they called Telefono Bianco films, which were films uh, where you know, poor Italian audiences could see what rich people lived like. And having a white telephone was apparently the classiest thing you could have in Italy then. And it's a touchstone even now. Hmm. Um, and I assume that's a deliberate use of one there although by the 70s they had become rather naff. Right? <laughs> now here's the BMW building yes. in, in, in uh, Munich and here's a yeah. very more importantly yes. a very young looking Udo Kier. Yeah, with an amazing amount of hair. It's strange to think that at the time Udo Kier was the biggest star name in this that um, I assume that the German money came in just to have Udo Kier in for this one scene which I remember when they showed um, all of Argento's films to date in a huge uh, mass screening at the Scala Cinema. This was the scene in which I chose to go out to the toilet, you know, because it is the sequence which is, I assume, purely here for people who really do need to catch up with whatever it is that has been going on. Well, and of course, it's famously the, the dialogue coach is actually lying behind them in that, in that bush of flowers, actually cueing Udo what to say literally he's literally two seconds behind what he's actually supposed to because Udo couldn't do this this was only a two-day job for Udo and he always told me that he got the uh, the offer completely out of the blue he was actually uh, 
quite famous at that time for living with Rainer Werner Fassbinder in Germany. Um, and he said he got this script, thought, oh, what's this? And he realised it was like two page of the most mind-numbing dialogue. <laughs> so he actually would have to learn it. There was no way he could because his English wasn't particularly good anyway. So the only way they could do this was actually having um, the prompter literally literally there <laughs> behind him. I, I mean, it's so, it would be so hilarious to actually have got a picture of what that actually would have looked like, I think. But you're right, this scene is completely pointless and it's one of those things that I think is a, often a failing of Dario's movies that he has to over explain things yeah. all the time but here he puts it all in one scene so you if anything you could cut it I mean it would be a shame to lose Odo Kier I mean but, uh, yeah. it, it's also I love the fact that in this film Udo Kier is the only normal character <laughs> whereas in most films he's the only crazy character um but, and, of course, Udo turns up in Mother of Tears as well. Yes, uh, it was sadly the, the major connection between the two films. Which, uh, which I think is. it's a shame he doesn't come back as the same guy. Character Frank Randall, yeah. yeah. It yeah. is Father Johannes in Mother of Tears. But, I mean, no, I mean, this is um, just what it is, isn't it? I mean, they must have got, been going through the motions when they did this, I think. What does it mean? Yeah. What does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> it, Jessica, it doesn't mean anything. Yes. <laughs> If you hadn't realised this by now. Yeah. Um, but I, I like the fact that it's limited to this one scene. And we don't infect the rest of the film with it. Because quite often his subsequent films do stop. Even Inferno stutters when it comes to explaining who made the house and why we're in the basement and, and what the curse means. Mm, I know. I mean, you know, and again, Udo's still, like Jessica, is just staggered that this is the film that yeah. they people come up to them and go, you know, well, you were in Suspira, found yeah. fantastic. So it's it's like their calling card as well, really. I mean, you know, he looked quite good there, I thought, Udo. He yeah, was, I mean, he is, it is in quite his good looking phase, isn't it? Yeah. And this is Professor Milius, isn't it? The, yeah. the, um, the Rudolf Schundler. Oh, right. Who'd been in, say, Fritz Lang movies, but also in a lot of those Edgar Wallace pictures of the, the 60s, the sinister monk and the monk with the whip. <laughs> um, and also wild, willing and sexy. Uh, plus, he was in The Exorcist. He's the... Um, the servant who was a big red herring in an earlier version that got cut but he's briefly in it and uh, then he, he's in uh, The American Friend and the Nasty Girl so he actually has an amazing career uh, and again is in here because Udo couldn't learn the last bit of dialogue <laughs> and, and somebody else has to come and take over and deliver it with just that bit of gravitas that you get from having an older distinguished white haired professor which is a part of, of, uh, of horror movie lore Mm. And Udo was dubbed by Frank von Kugelgen, <laughs> Kugelgen, in case anyone's keeping up to date on who's doing yeah. what on the on the yeah. dubbing side of things. Yeah. Actually, completely left field. Uh, was Kia's Fassbinder connection? Did Fassbinder see this film? Because some of his subsequent movies have this same look, don't they? I don't think Fassbinder was even aware of this. I mean, I, I think yeah. he didn't know why mm. Udo went off to do it. He was really quite irritated by it from what Udo right. was telling me. <laughs> you know, why did you bother? You know, who is this person? Again, you see, I mean, to, to a great extent, it's the same now. I mean... I, I've seen so many people be on a, on a Dario picture thinking, well, here I am in Italy. No one's going to see this movie. I've never heard of this director. I mean, what? no one's going to know if I'm terrible in it because, you know, the whole uh, point of this is that I'm just, you know, making a bit of cash on the side. And, you know, and of course, they're absolutely amazed when it actually goes all around the world because Dario is the name. Is They always underestimate that the Dario is still to this day. I'm one of 
Italy's, well, the top export yeah. of, 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 of movies. I he think. is a brand name director. Yeah. And do you think that Argento's actually had a problem with that over his career? The, the, the I mean, as you're saying, the necessity to compete with himself mm. or with um, the public's idea of him. And this is the moment where, as it were, the Argento cult starts, isn't it? It is Definitely. from this film. That he starts getting fans um, and people who who respond to his particular vision, his particular idea of, of cinema. I'd go around after this and say, well, of course, you weren't there at the beginning when it was, yes. <laughs> you know, I saw the one yes. in sequence. How dare yes, you? Um, so, yes, you could pull a bit of rank here because yeah. then you've got to remember that they were quite difficult to see. I mean, Suspiria wasn't. I mean, Suspiria is interesting to me because um, EMI picked it up i mean you know so it got a circuit release. it did get a big circuit release based on the the italian i mean this was uh, um i think i'm right in saying i think this is this was the seventh biggest um grossing movie of 1977 in italy it actually opened on um on in the on february the first and it went on to make an absolute fortune um i'm trying to remember what it was in lira i do know that i do know the full it's something like Oh, for, oh God! One billion four hundred and thirty <laughs> uh, million lira, which is, you know, is a lot. Um, and I, I mean, once a film hits those figures, especially in a small territory like Italy, other big companies are going to take note. I mean, Fox released it before um, uh, uh, most of the rest of the world in August, and of course, but they were embarrassed by it, weren't they? So they put it under another under another company name, International Classics, because they thought this was the time before Friday the 13th and Paramount, where Paramount actually had no shame. Yeah, and they just put came the out. mountain on the movie. Yes. Yeah, we, yeah. We're releasing a horror yeah. movie. We yeah. don't care who knows. So there's that side of it with that one. Ah, all the... Shot of a toilet there. <laughs> maybe a psycho reference, maybe not. <laughs> maybe just a, a, a little note. But this was a movie that, uh, maybe against expectations, got great reviews. It did indeed, didn't it? I mean, I mean, Derek always used to tell me that um, he knew he'd made it when one of the biggest critics in Italy, who'd never liked any one of his movies, and I think I'm right in saying that it was the, the guy's name is... Um, I will now check... Just very quickly. Yes, Giovanni Grazzini. That's who the big critic was, who uh, wrote for Corriere della Sera, still one of the top Italian newspapers. And more importantly, he was actually the head of the National Union of Critics, you know, a bit like our critic circle here. And he actually put his stamp on it and said, well, you know, I'm amazed. I've never liked any of his other stuff. But this, I think... Uh, crystallises Argento as the master of fright. And, of course, other people just thought, what are you doing? He must be mental. But, of course, he was proved right. And so, and everyone else around the world literally followed suit. Some of the, this got some of the best reviews I've mm. ever read. And I still remember the Time Out one, which was, uh, you know, Don't Think, Just Panic, which I've always yeah. thought was a great one. It, on this scene, with the back coming out of the closet, yeah. you can actually see... The, the, the dangly cord oh, right. bit. Yeah. So if you look carefully there, yeah. you can actually see a bit of the old... Yeah, um... yeah we're back to the Hammer film, Bat on a String, yeah. But, <laughs> uh, but it's all, this particular... Um, Philip is something that turns up a lot in Italian horror, horror films. Lucio Fulci used it a lot. The persistent bat. I believe there's one in um, House by the Cemetery. But also, I think before this, in Lizard and Almond Skin, there's a very similar sequence. There is indeed. It's actually featured on the poster, in fact, yeah. too, isn't it? Um, so obviously, it's it's the 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 bat or the bird or the crawly thing that gets caught in the hair. I mean, that does sadly. Um, 
not stand up to the best of professional <laughs> face work. Uh, yes, Carlo Romaldi was not on hand for that particular bat, I think we have to say. Uh, it, is, but, it was. It was like you had to put a bat in, didn't you? Because yeah. it was like that was what a horror film motif yeah. was. Yeah, and a squashed bat <laughs> here in particular. But, uh, yeah. but anyway, back to, to the, the British reception of this movie, I remember, was extremely strong. I mean, probably because this is actually... Although it's a crowd-pleasing film, it's also the kind of movie critics like because it flatters them. It mm. is... I mean, we shouldn't forget that Argento started as a film critic and it's full of all the stuff because critics like to be sort of... like to talk about art direction and camera work and, and sort of technical things. Mm. And this is offers rich meat, doesn't it? I mean, it's like even the qualities sort of recognise that um, th there was more going on here than just, you know, girls being killed in a ballet school. Um, and uh, so the, you know, the rich visual heritage was appreciated, even by the kind of newspapers that, for instance, did not give a big write-up to Zoltan Hound of Dracula. Mm. Uh, no, you can tell week. it was something quite... And another reason I think it, it, it worked really well is because it is so such a typical Italian product. I mean, Claudio... Well, Gento always said that to me. So that when they were filming it, they kept thinking, you know, this is probably going to work really well in, to an Italian audience, but I'm not sure how well it's going to travel. But then that's like saying uh, Billy Elliot wouldn't mm. travel. I yes. mean, the more the more you know localized something is, often is it travels more. Slumdog Millionaire is another good mm. example. But I mean, I think with this, it's perfect. I think. And that's why people, especially someone like me who was watching uh, it as a fan, I loved the whole Italian look and sensibility of it. That's what I wanted to see. In fact, I think Dario's um, often accused of when he goes to America, like for Two Evil Eyes or Trauma, by trying to make it to American, he loses what is so crucial about why people like him. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's never really gone to America. I mean, he could have done after this. I mean, you know, this, let's face it, focused attention on him in... in, in he could have he could have gone to whoever uh let's yeah. say paramount and done a a, a, a stephen king movie yeah. couldn't he yeah he could have got exorcist 2 if he'd wanted yeah, <laughs> yeah. um i yeah. doubt if that would have paid off for him uh, any more than it did for john borman but he must have been on the the short list mm. for a big studio horror project after this. And you're right, there were lots of Stephen King things floating mm. around. I'm sure he could have ended up... Well, Damiani it's... did uh, Amityville too, yes, didn't he? Yeah. So why, it's no stretch of the imagination to think that Dario could have been offered that. Yeah. But like Barber before him, do you think he was reluctant to give up his own signature? Well, definitely. And in fact, we've got a great example of that right now with Jallo. I mean, the fact that Jallo, his new film, is the very first one that he's done for another company that he wasn't in strict control of and it's all gone horribly wrong and I think that it could have done there. He knew it though. He knew at the time that if he did go to America or if he did do that he would have to sort of follow a different set of rules where his autonomy would not be, you know, as great as it is mm. on his Italians. I mean, it, it, I, I think you really have to, you can't overstress the importance of Dario's name in Italy. He literally can do what he's like. I mean, when Dario and Dario were together. They really were the, the Liz Taylor, Richard Burton, the posh and becks of their time. They really were. It's hard to imagine that, but they were in the newspapers non-stop. Yeah. You know. I mean, in, in the genre, let's face it, nobody else could... I mean, you can't say that, I don't know, Rob Zombie and Sherry Moon really, <laughs> uh, lovely as they are, really displaced that sort of cultural water. Okay? It's yeah, absolutely yeah. true. There has never been that sort <laughs> yes. of celeb couple no, type on, yeah. is there really? Um, so. Which is probably a good thing, I think, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but no, so yes, I mean, I think that it, it is, 
one of the reasons when I very first went uh, when I first went to Italy. Yeah. Oh, I uh, love this little moment uh, where you actually see the scary servants having a good time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, uh, which I, I like the fact that it suggests that quite a lot of what they're doing is an act. <laughs> yeah, um, and that they're not always as they are when you see them being ominous and scary. In fact, I think they're more scary now you know that they have a life. Mm. <laughs> So we're gearing up, I think, towards the fabulous ending. Yeah, and I have to say, although um, I I love this movie, I've always felt that its ending didn't match the first 92 minutes. And I think it's because it is a pitch you can't... As you said, every set piece in this film is like the ending of another film. What it doesn't do is deliver the uber ending because the ending of this film is like the ending of a film. Mm. But it follows such a great build-up. It does seem to me that the evil is defeated rather quickly. Uh, it is a case of, you know, uh, put the dagger in the in the witch and the whole house falls down. Wow. Mother uh, of but, Tears, whisk, yeah. whisk off the red miniskirt yes, and it's all that's over. right, yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. so. um, and is that because stories like this really can't have a resolution? I find the ending of Inferno actually quite satisfying, but that's simply because it, does, it says you can't win. <laughs> you know? yes. um, whereas here, she can win. Um, and and I, I, again, going back in time, and the only reason she wins is because of her fairy tale innocence, isn't mm. it? It's a, that is her only strength here. Uh, although it's taking her an inordinate amount of time to figure out to realise that the three yes. flowers on the yes. wall—that's right—are actually the key to yeah. the whole thing. I mean, yeah, I mean, these are look at this. I mean. <laughs> I mean, the rain literally goes all the way through it as a sort of yeah. a motif yeah. right at the very beginning. Isn't oh, it? why is Erasmus given a credit for this? <laughs> um, is it just because he likes the name? Because it's certainly very little to do with Erasmus, the the, the rationalist philosopher <laughs> and, and humane thinker of the Elizabethan era. Uh, but uh... here she goes. No, what was it? Yes, it's in the mirror. She didn't notice it there, yes. but I mean, now now it's been singled out in the just 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 wonderful, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the the revelation in in the mirror also features in Deep Red, so it is a kind of a, another recurrence. Mm. Um, there we are, yeah. flashback. Yeah. The blue one. The blue one. The blue one. No, we didn't hear that. I yes. mean, actually, a lot of people did say at the time that because the music was so loud, um, you actually couldn't hear a lot of the dialogue. <laughs> I mean, I do remember that being uh, uh, a criticism pitched at this particular film. Um, when I watched it for the first time, I mean, I, I found it all so overwhelming yeah. that, I mean, I didn't notice any of that at I- all. I don't remember that being a problem at the time, but I also, this is a film where you could quite easily miss a lot of the dialogue. Mm. Not, not that it's not you know, good yeah no. but i and in fact one of the the problems of many italian horror films is the leaden dialogue it's like particularly writing the english version comes a long way down the list of things to do but this i mean i remember the 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 british premiere of phenomena the uh, the huge gale of laughter that greeted the line i must rejoin my regiment at dawn <laughs> um, this doesn't have anything like that there are none of those really howler lines that do crop up in quite a lot of italian horror films so i assume that somebody must have gone through and tarted up the english translation oh, presumably sure. not daria or daria nick alexander <laughs> would do that all the time mm-hmm. I, the, I, I love the, the, 
Dario uses curtains a, a <laughs> yes. lot. I mean, a lot yes. in this. I mean, I mean, and in all his past work, there's a lot of sort of scenes where people go through open <laughs> curtains, almost like this is it. This is the <laughs> theatrical part of the of the film. I mean, yeah. you know, here's the <laughs> stage. You know, we've opened the curtains. Now it's going. This is um, Luciano Tovoli's most favourite moment in the entire film. He said that he's most proudest of the blacks and the golds <laughs> on this sequence than he is of any. He said it took an enormous amount of time to actually light it like that. But he thinks, for him, it's the crowning achievement of his entire career. I think he's certainly right. And one of the things I found being on film sets is the thing everybody hates is waiting for the cameraman to light it. Because it is like arcane and occult, isn't it? It's something that nobody else, including the director often, has any idea what they're doing until they see the rushes. Mm. And you can understand why actors in particular go spare wondering what is actually being done for the hours that it takes to light something like this. I think this is the sort of sequence that shows exactly why you do spend the money and the time to get this. Mm. Here's actually, I'd never noticed this before, but this is actually another thematic throwback, or fast forward rather, to Mother of Tears. It's, this is almost Asia yes. creeping yeah. up yeah. on to the Mother of Tears in the coven again. Yeah. It's actually very, very, almost identical. So um, that's interesting to me. So it actually does follow through a few... Here we go. I mean, this is like no great revelation, is it? No. That there's this secret passage. That we knew they were evil. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, and that she's the uh, the head of the coven. Yeah. I mean, she's the headmistress. I mean, it's yes. no, it's yeah. no great stretch, is it? Yeah. In, Mad- in, in Inferno, it's not really credible that the it's the nurse who turns out to be the head of everything. And you think, <laughs> well, so that doesn't even play well, either. Yeah. Yes, but they were really clever here by calling her Madame Blank, like yes. white. Yeah. Ooh, she can't possibly be the Black Queen yes. if she's called yeah. white. So... Um, that's what I think. Oh, I mean, so this must have taken ages to actually have got yeah. right. I just, I just think this is so beautiful. This is one of my favourite moments now. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think uh, you're not going to win an Oscar for that one. No. <laughs> but no, I mean. This is the gamine look that she does so well. Mm. I mean, yes, here we go. The zombie. And this was at a time when horror films didn't have those kind of Sigourney Weaver, Jamie Lee Curtis heroines who who basically can take on a monster and beat them up on their own terms. Mm. She is still the fragile flower, uh, the, the traditional fairy tale horror. However, she gets out of this without Prince Charming having to come along. So she does at least show some uh, gumption. I think, I mean, I remember at the time thinking that the, I couldn't quite work out that actually she had nails in her eyes. That looked really weird to me. I thought they just looked like mirrors when when you first see them, I think. But I mean, ah, well, I mean, this is the famous bird with the crystal plumage. Absolutely, we finally get one after having not seen a bird with the crystal plumage in the film of that title. Uh, it is almost like um, a, a, yeah, a square up reel at the end is we finally get one. Um, another theme that's in Argento films is people being killed with works of art, isn't mm. it? Because that's in um, Bird with the Crystal Plumage too. where the, the, And Tenebrae, in fact. Tenebrae, yeah, people are killed with sculptures. Yeah. Uh, um, 
And it's the kind of thing that prompts people in the audience to say, oh, I thought that looked dangerous. (laughs) Now, I mean, here's the other apocryphal story about uh, Suspiria, is the fact that here's the Black Queen, Helena Marcos. I mean, and who is it? I mean, Dario apparently went onto the streets of Trastevere (laughs) and uh, found uh, uh, an ex-hooker who was 90 (laughs) years old. Now... Yes, I mean, that's a great story, I think, yeah. but would you, at 90 years old, actually still be admitting that you were, yes. a, you were, <laughs> you were an ex-hooker? But that's who he says he got. Um, she's not credited particularly, I don't think, in the, in, in the final film. Do we have a name for her? Or no, no, not at all. Yeah. You know, 90-year-old ex-hooker. All right. But he also said that the, uh, the character playing the lumbering evil handyman was a kind of loon he found around, but then it turns out he's got a whole bunch of other film credits uh, before and after. <laughs> Uh, Some quite respectable, so presumably it's an actor. Print the legend. Print the legend. The yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. I mean, There's a tiny visual echo of uh, Mrs. Bates' bed there as well mm. from Psycho, the the, the climax. But, uh, I, I, I do think it's interesting to me that this is the one film Dario has the least recall on. I think he was so focused on what he was doing that whatever was happening around him because I've tried and tried and tried to get memories out of him on this one and even Inferno which he hated making he can remember more about than this which I think is probably par for the course when he was like desperately trying to sort of make it as best as he could and was so focused on getting all the technical side of it right which I mean I think this is the most technically um, difficult film of his to have made I mean all of this and here she's going to the fate. I mean, I love that. Yes, that that could have been done better when yes. you think about it, couldn't it? I mean, um, yeah, uh, but I, I've seen worse <laughs> <laughs> recently. Yeah, um, and that's go. that's where I think it starts getting a little weak. It's like stab the witch, and suddenly the. Uh, Stefania Cassini's character isn't even a zombie she's a phantom mm. um, that looks so rubbery it's yes. untrue but yeah. then that's what happened at the time wasn't yes it? and who knows what 150 year old witches actually are <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh. and there so she's killed with a, a plumage from the bird <laughs> which I suppose yeah. was his way of saying yeah. the, the jallo's finished I'm yes. doing this well, stuff yeah. now Jessica said that this was one of the worst scenes she ever had to do. The exploding glass, I mean, no safety, obviously, around in this particular sequence. Um, And she's on those heels as well. She just had to sort of run through it and hope for the best that she wasn't going to get hit by flying glass. Uh, And so this was a very difficult film for her to to do. And you see, the villains just die. (laughs) That's right. The film is over, they just die. Yeah, I, I actually I love the um, the cracking walls as well. There is yeah. a, a sort of House of Usher thing to it. Well, and, and Guillermo del Toro stole that for the opening credits of the Orphanage. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> because he 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 Guillermo loves Dario's work a lot, and you can see a lot of references in his work too for for, for Dario. I mean, you've got to remember. I mean, Dario was so influential. I mean, you know. Pascal Logier's Martyrs is dedicated to him, the recent film. I mean, you know, Lucky McKee literally, you know, did a remake of this, didn't he? You know, Under the Wood. I mean, and the remake, that's the remake they should leave at because there's never going to be... And they've been promising the remake since 2003 with Natalie Portman supposedly starring as, uh, you know, as Susie Banyan. Um, Why would Natalie Portman want to be in this, you know? 
I don't know. And who was the director they, they, they decided to use? What's his name? David Gordon Green, wasn't it? Yes, that's the, right. The guy who did Pineapple, Pineapple Express. Express. Well, now there's a film yes. that was obviously something yeah. that would get him this role. Yeah. Although, actually, he also made George Washington and a couple of other really odd films beforehand. True but, you, but it's one of those things you think, why would anybody want to be attached to this? Because uh, yeah. you're on a hiding to nothing. That's the trouble with remaking a classic, as all the people who've done it recently. Either you make something that's exactly the same as the old film, in which people say, what's the point? Or you make something different, in which people say, the old film was better. Uh, you have been watching Suspiria, Suspiria, as opposed to you have been watching... Whatever what? else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, well, there you go. I mean, I think, you know... I. It, it's the landmark horror that it is for all the reasons that I think is, 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 is really important. It, it's absolutely brilliant. There we are, Nick Alexander's name. Recorded in English. Yes. <laughs> you know. No, I mean, fire, flames, end of... Just like Inferno at the end. In yeah. fact, just like... They, all three of the films actually end more or less the same, I think, now. Um, well, Kim, that yeah. was, that well, was uh, an it's, interesting... It's remarkable seeing it again. I, it, it always works for me. This is a film I can watch every couple of months, um, maybe because it doesn't depend on its narrative, so its mysteries never really fade. Yes, and you can have it on in the background and <laughs> yeah. just watch it. There we are, De Paulus, <laughs> Eastman Colour, Technicolour. Um, although it says Eastman Colour there, it was printed in the three-strip Technicolour process, so uh, that's often a, a mistake there that people make. But anyway... That was Suspiria. We've just watched it.